Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Well, 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 here we are, 2024. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. First episode of the year, season four, episode one. I am thrilled to have you here today, this year, and I'm ready to dive in. I've got a great topic for you today, one I've been wanting to talk about for quite some time. But before we get started, as always, a little housekeeping to let you know about the Run Club app, the official training app of Running Explained, is launching next Monday, January 15th. And I'm very excited about it. You'll be able to learn more about it on my Instagram at Running Explained, on the website, runningexplained.co. The long and short of it is it's an app <laughs> that has all currently available training, like running training plans, the ones you're all familiar with, know and love that have previously and are still going to be available as individual PDF downloads, but in the app will be available to you all at the same time so you can customize, swap, switch between Pick the best combination of programs for your schedule in the monthly plan, as well as being able to layer on strength programs that are going to be complementary to your current phase of training. There's also going to be resources and uh, explanations and a whole bunch of other stuff. And there's not there's another level to this. So there's going to be the regular app. It's all in the same app. There's going to be the regular level plan access, and there's going to be a premium option. And that includes a monthly group coaching called Led Live by me, as well as a group form and group chat. So kind of the bridging the gap between working with a coach one-on-one and going it alone. So I'm super excited about this to roll that out and have that be I mean, just something where I know that a lot of you have, and I am super immensely grateful for this, but purchased multiple programs over the years. And how great would it be to have all of the programs available at your fingertips at any time to craft the series of the periodization of your own training that is best for you. So yes, stay tuned for that. The Run Club, very excited about that. Um, What else is going on in the world of me Well, uh, we have a couple spots left for one-on-one coaching. Rosters are filling up very quickly, so no guarantees on that. I know we still have a couple people who have been interested. So if you are looking for one-on-one coaching, I would probably schedule your exploration call sooner rather than later, just an FYI. But of course, all the regular stuff is still available. PDF individual training plans are available, masterclasses, the foundation series, and I'm also excited to be expanding those offerings as well this year. So Enough of that. Let's get started. We are going to talk today about characteristics of elite distance runners. How is it that some runners are able to do what seems like the extraordinary, the almost impossible? What are the things that make that allow them to do that? And we're going to talk about First of all, defining what an elite athlete actually is, because uh, there's actually been like, well, what does that actually mean? Um, defining what an elite athlete actually is, looking at some of the underlying um, genetic predispositions, physiological characteristics 
of what an elite athlete um, has, and then talking about the training framework that elite athletes, and we're talking specifically about distance athletes, right? So not track athletes, not middle distance runners, we're typically talking about in the context of the research, it focuses mainly on marathoners, but keep in mind that elite runners are running marathons in two two hours and 15 minutes, right? So um, distance running. Uh, the, the training frameworks that distance runners uh, tend to engage in. And the cool thing is that there is some research that looks at all of this. Now, of course, more research is always going to be better. But as is indicated in, in uh, many of the studies and articles that I'm going to share from uh, that I will be sharing from today with you is that creating <laughs> gathering data over long periods of time from some of the best athletes in the world is basically impossible, right? Like you're not going to be able to get the top 50 elite athletes in the world to essentially submit to being lab rats for 18 months. That's not at all realistic, not just from a proprietary training method standpoint, but from like a feasibility standpoint, right? So a lot of the data that we are looking at when it comes to understanding the characteristics, the properties, the training habits, um, of elite athletes, elite distance runners, comes from essentially retrospective data, looking at what they've already done from a training standpoint, from a results standpoint, um, and and also looking at you know some uh, physiological characteristics of elite athletes who are already elite, right? And I think that's a really key thing to note is that when we talk about the you know what the potential that somebody has in order to be an elite athlete. Now, obviously, one of the things that distinguishes elite athletes is that they are born with probably a much higher level of potential than the rest of us, right? Is what it is. Uh, just just kind of the way the, the genetic dice were rolled um, on that person. And obviously, there's a lot of her, um, hereditary stuff that goes on there. But long story short, um, that somebody may be born with the potential to be an elite athlete, yet for whatever reason, it never happened. Maybe they ended up hating sports. Maybe they had no interest in it. Maybe they did something else instead, right? So they never became a person who was able to be put into a sample, you know, of the of elite athletes who are being studied for X, Y, Z, right? So I think it's really interesting to note, and this is with all research, always essentially every time that um, research is conducted, the whole point is that, well, cool, we looked at this one thing, but now what are the questions that arise from it? Is that, you know, when looking at the characteristics of elite endurance, dis- elite endurance athletes, elite distance runners, is that it's self-selecting for a population who have already sh- shown that they can do these things, right? Not the ones who have the potential to do them. So um, again, that's kind of one of the limitations of this. But anyways, I still think it's very interesting because when we're watching people do what seems like almost like magic, right? We have to say, oh my God, how are they able to do that? And of course, it is going to be the confluence of, like I said, those genetic predispositions and a you know a little bit of luck, right place, right time, and that they chose to become runners instead of I don't know elite uh, rowers or mountain climbers or I don't know something else, but that they chose to to do this um, to be runners. 
um, the expression of the essentially nurturing expression of that potential through the years of their training. Uh, and then that they were able to train in a way over time that allowed everything to kind of come together, right? So it's it's genetic predisposition, it's the history of them personally and what they've been able to do, and then the training framework um, kind of all mixing together to allow them to reach the you know kind of limits of their potential. Now, first, let's define what we mean by elite, uh, because the word elite can be, well, as I will let uh, the authors of this article, Defining Training and Performance Caliber, a Participant Classification Framework, um, authored by some excellent and very well-known physio- sports physiologists in the field, <laughs> uh, they say that, quote, the term elite subjects may, might be one of the most overused and ill-defined terms in the exercise science literature end quote. Um, so yeah, what does elite actually mean? This article tried to devise a tiered framework for defining what different um, tiers of athletes were. And this is not specific to endurance athletes or distance runners. This looks at people who are who exercise or athletes kind of across the range of all possible ways one can be an athlete from team sports to you know strength and power events you know basically what does it mean to be elite as an athlete um, not just as a distance runner so they came up with this framework uh, of different tiers and if you hear paper in the background it's because I am just shaking paper around to impress you. I'm just kidding. It's because I'm flipping through studies. Um, They came up with this this, uh, six-tiered framework that essentially tried to at least provide context and definition for what does it mean when we're talking about somebody who's world-class versus highly trained versus recreational, right? What are, or sedentary, what are these things mean? So the, the top tier, tier five, so it goes tier zero through five, um, the top tier, tier five, which they described as world-class, right? And this is, we're gonna be focusing uh, in the purposes of this discussion, I believe mostly on the, um, well, I'll let you, it's going to be mostly on the first the tier five, four, and three, and I'll explain why we're not just focusing on world-class. Well, I think it'll be obvious is what I said before is that it's really hard to get a whole bunch of world-class athletes to submit to being guinea pigs. Although we do have some data from world-class athletes, um, that was, that is in other studies that have looked at what elite athletes are doing. Um, it's very hard to study only this population specifically because there's so few of them, right? And they're so, you know, they're not going to, like I said, submit to being guinea pigs. So anyways, world class, this is less than 0.00006% of the global population. That's a a very tiny uh, fraction of the global population when you put it that way. However, if we consider that there are about 8 billion people on the earth right now, comes out to about 480,000 individuals. And remember, this is across all sport athletic competition, right? So this is not just elite, you know, uh, world-class marathoners. These are world-class football players and soccer players and cricket players and hockey players. These are, you know, uh, shot put and javelin. This is all the other sports that have completely escaped speed skaters, uh, biathlon, triathletes, and mountaineers, rock climbers, you know, all those elite, you know, world-class athletes. Criteria for classification, what makes them world-class and how do they classify somebody who is world-class? These are Olympic and or world medalists. 
These are world record holders and athletes achieving within 2% of world record performance and or world leading performance. These are athletes who are in the top three to 20 in world rankings or the top three to 10 at a Olympics slash world championship, i.e. finalists in their event. They are top players within top teams, right? So think about the star strikers in the Premier League, world class, or athletes achieving individual accolades on those top teams. They are achieving maximal or nearly maximal training within the given sports norms, right? They are able to achieve a very high level of training within their sport. And they have exceptional skill level achieved, i.e. running biomechanics, ball skills, acquired decision-making components, etc. These are the best of the best, world-class. And I think we can really probably tick off on our hands the runners that come to mind, right? So this is, this is world-class. The next tier, tier four, elite slash international level. This is an estimate of uh, 0.0025% of the global population or about 20 million people on a population of 8 billion, the, the, the size, the numbers of this, like 8 billion people, it's honestly a little bit hard to conceptualize. 20 million people is hard enough to conceptualize, but I do try. Criteria for classification to be an elite slash international level athlete is competing at the international level as an individual or in team sport athletes on a national team, right? Team sport athletes competing in international leagues or tournaments, top four to 300 in world rankings, depending on size and depth of the competition at this event, it's probably going to be more impressive to be the 300th world ranked somebody in a hugely popular sport versus a 300 world ranked somebody in a sport that nobody does just you know <laughs> depending on the size and depth of competition at this event achievement within seven percent roughly approximately seven percent of world record performance and or world leading performance this encompasses ncaa division one athletes this are athletes at achieving maximal or nearly maximal training within given sport norms with the intention to compete at top level competition. And these athletes have are highly proficient in skills required to perform sport. Right. So this is I mean, I think we can think top national level athletes. Right. So in America, I think, we, again, we can all kind of tick off on our hands. Athlete, runners specifically who we can think of, yeah, these are the best of what our country has to offer. Now they may not be winning world majors, but they're definitely winning top American, second American, third American, right? They're, they're world leading, they're setting national records, they're winning NCAA, NCAA titles, right? The best of, you know, kind of the, and not necessarily winning on the world stage, but placing on a world stage, ranking at a world stage. Tier three, Highly trained slash national level. Now you might think, Elizabeth, I just thought that you said that uh, tier two was the national level stuff. I would say those are the, <laughs> tier two is people who are the best in their country who are competing on the world level. Um, tier three, and this is again, I'm, I'm editorializing to some extent here because again, this, this stuff is a little bit hard to classify, which is why the authors of this article even set out to do this. Tier three, highly trained slash national level, about 0.014% of the global population. Um, this is uh, athletes who are competing at the national level, team sport athletes competing in national and or state leagues and tournaments. They're able to achieve within about 20% of world record performance or world leading performance. These are NCAA division two and three athletes. These are uh, athletes who are developing proficiency and skills required to perform sport, i.e. biomechanics, ball skills, acquired decision-making components, et cetera. 
but they're not they're not going to the Olympics, right? They're going to the Olympic trials, but they're not going to the Olympics. And just to kind of give you an idea of what within 20% of world record performance might look like, and this is my back of the envelope math. So a tier three athlete, highly trained slash national level. So considering the current marathon world records for both men and women, a tier three highly trained slash national level athlete, the equivalent performance for a man, a man would be a 224 marathon. So fast, but not a world record, right? Uh, not even the Olympic trial standard, actually, for Americans, uh, for, for, yeah, which is 218. Um, and for women, it's two hours and 37 minutes for the marathon, which is the OTQ standard, right? For the half marathon, it's equivalent of a 109 half, and for women, equivalent of a 116 half. So again, fast, but they're not going to be winning the Olympics, right? Again, going to the trials, but not going to the Olympics, Tier two, trained slash developmental athletes. Here's where most of us are going to hang out. There's, <laughs> uh, this is between 12 and 19% of the global population. The uh, criteria for classification is local level representation, training regularly at least three times a week. You identify with a specific sport, train with a purpose to compete or develop, and have limited skill development, which, ouch, Twist the knife. Uh, the authors further elaborate on tier two specifically. Individuals, and this is quote, individuals in this tier identify with a given sport and are differentiated from tier one, tier below it, because of their commitment to sports specific training and an intention to compete in local level competitions. I would say, or the equivalent, because not every, you know, I would say good recreational athlete, actually recreational is the next thing. You know what I mean? People, you know, most of you listen to this podcast, let's say we're, we're in tier two. Um, you can, you can be in this tier and have absolutely no interest in competing. I don't think that necessarily competition needs to be a criteria, but they had to draw the line somewhere. No performance criteria or skill level is, I'm going back to quoting here. No performance criteria or skill level is required to reach this classification. Individuals in this tier represent a relatively large percentage of the available population of trained individuals and are well suited for trials that can require large number, <clears throat> large subject numbers to be adequately statistically powered. So again, this is, I would say most people who are participating, who are honestly, you guys listening to this podcast, right? Most regular runners are in this phase. Now, there are going to be a handful of you who are probably do qualify as tier three, highly trained slash national level athletes, which is freaking awesome. But I wanted to, um, I think it's important to elucidate this because I, I, you know, for those of us who are normal people, right. Who may be inside dream that we're capable of amazing things. I, and I don't say this in order to discourage us. I say this in order to be like, wow, this is really to highlight how exceptional the best of the best really are. It's that the the gulf between right um, trained tier two athletes and world class tier five athletes is large, right? So when we talk about the you know, is it possible that somebody you know, is who is a, a tier two trained athlete could develop into a world-class athlete? Probably not because the, I would argue that the base level of, of, you know, characteristics and let's, you know, just call it talent for lack of a better word, the base level of talent 
that a world-class capable athlete is born with would probably automatically slot them into tier three, highly trained slash national level at the beginning of their journey, right? They are already born with a set of skills that makes them just on a, on a starting level really good. And then if they embark on a decade or more of proper training as a high level athlete, they can develop into a world-class athlete. So I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, what is, <laughs> where are we trying to go with this? Um, and again, I don't say this to discourage you because I do want you to dream really, really big. Um, and I do think that all, most of us are capable of way more than we realize. But I also want to highlight that even for the best in the world, they have to have had this, like I said, perfect confluence of genetics, timing, development, um, performances that have allowed them to kind of get the most out of themselves. And again, for most of the people we're talking about, not most, almost all, all the ones on the world-class stage, most of the athletes on the uh, elite international stage, tier four, and I would say the majority of the athletes on the tier three highly translash national level stage are probably working towards or are not or already are full-time athletes right now of course we do have outliers we have people who are achieving the olympic standard working 60 hours a week as a lawyer or whatever there's always those like like oh my god are you serious like how do you have time for that i don't know how they have time for that and also still sleep um but they're the outliers and i think it's what makes those stories even more incredible um and we have to remember, and that we'll talk about this in some of the other uh, parts of this episode, is that um, it's it, the training is really time consuming, right? So it's not just, do you have the potential to train that way? Are you able to train that way? Are you able to train that way at a high volume for years? Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. So what is the basis for what allows an athlete to develop into a world-class athlete? Um, Let's start with like I said, the underlying level of talent or genetic predispositions towards being able to do something. Now, going where we are with science, uh, research on genetics is becoming um, more common, um, more uh, specific, more nuanced. It's still incredibly complicated. I'm not going to even pretend that I understand half of what geneticists talk about. Um, But I do want to highlight some of the things that I was reading in, in some of the studies I looked at. So there is a study here Uh, This is from, what year is this from? 2019, Genes and Elite Marathon Running Performance, a Systematic Review from the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine. Um, So this essentially looked at, uh, this was a meta-analysis looking, or a review of research that's been done looking at genetic markers of elite athletes and seeing like, hey, can we we find stuff? Like commonalities? What are we looking at here? Um, So essentially they're like, we think we know some things, but... The other thing is that genetics is not just about what you're born with. It's about what gets expressed throughout your lifespan, and that's called epigenetics. Um, So I'll just quote. uh, (laughs) um, 
future research utilizing genome-wide technologies in large cohorts is required to elucidate the multiple genetic factors that govern complex endurance-related traits and the impact of epigenetics should be considered. End quote. Epigenetics, again, how your behavior and environment can cause changes that affect the way that your genes work. Essentially, you may be born with the ability to do something or the potential to do something, but for whatever reason, that gene never got turned on or turned off or whatever the gene was supposed to do um, because of the environment or something that happened to you, the individual, right? That's why one of the gold standards of doing research in people is looking at twin studies, right? Because you have people who are genetically identical. And then if you do different things to them or different things happen to them, you can see, you know, okay, all else being equal, how does the thing influence the genetics? Um, Which again, that would be like, yeah, do you want to do (laughs) a... twin studies on elite athletes like good luck I don't think there are that many out there um I will also quote again from this study I'm not even going to it like honestly I read this and sometimes you know I'm not I'm not scientifically illiterate uh but this this level of complexity um when they're listing out all the specific genes that's way above my head um (laughs) So I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend that I understand uh, what uh, this gene, what is what was one of the ones that I loved? I was like, yeah, I'm not going to understand what this is. Um, P para GC1 alpha. No, I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> quote, it has been acknowledged that to reach elite level performance, a synergy of physiological and psychological traits combined with an optimal environment are required. So you got to have essentially the ingredients but you also have to have the process, like I said, a little bit of luck and time and all these other factors that then allow those genes to fully express themselves in the way that you are looking for as the potential world-class athlete. Um, there are some, some specific genes that they looked at um, that are involved in metabolic pathways uh, that are involved in collagen and ligaments and the range of motion, which may influence the um, running economy or the energetic cost of running, uh, looking at enzymes involved in cardiovascular function. Um, so, I mean, there's all the, and again, it's so hard to be like, we're looking at, at all these things, but can we say that, oh, because this person has this gene, they're going to be the next, you know, well, I guess it's Kelvin Kiptum at this point. Um, no, of course not. We can't say that. The potential, yes, but that 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 could that gives you kind of like a leg up, but it, you still have to do all the work and also have to have all of these other things in your life go the right way. The other thing about the genetic stuff, and I did want to highlight this, is because when we get into the and where I think we're going to see this more often, um, I, obviously there are huge benefits to doing genetic testing uh, for you know um, identification of cancer risk and all these types of things. But but there's a really interesting study that was done back in 2019. Um, learning one's genetic risk changes physiology independent of actual genetic risk. What? Yeah, they did this at Stanford where all of the most interesting psychology studies go (laughs) happen. Um, This was published in, uh, what what was it published in? Um, Human Behavior Journal. Um, Anyways, this is all freely uh, available text. Um, You can always look this up online. Learning once genetic risk changes physiology independent of actual genetic risk. Long story short, they took some people, they divide them into groups, they told 
some groups they had this you know genetic um profile and they had other people they had this other genetic risk profile and then they had them do things which is basically how it works when it comes to studies long story short the people who were it, nobody like it was wasn't true and i think it's the whole crux of the of the um why we do the research right so they told one group of people they were they said two groups of people in in part of the study they told one group they were essentially had a gene that allowed them to perform really well at aerobic activity and they had told the other group they had a gene that told them they were absolute crap at aerobic activity and then they had them go do aerobic activity and hey guess what the group that were told they were good performed better than the group that were told they were crap except none of it was true so that is, I think, an interesting impact on what you believe about yourself, right? So to say, oh, but I'm predisposed to be excellent at aerobic activity, right? Whether or not that's true, it literally can change physiologically how you respond and how you perform, which is interesting because you might think that's ridiculous, like either you can or you can't. And yes, but no. Um Clearly, that's not true. The placebo effect is a real thing for a reason. Now, obviously, you can't, you know, if somebody told me, hey, Elizabeth, you can run the, you know, 5K world record. I'd be like, yeah, I don't quite believe you. But somebody told me, hey, Elizabeth, I believe you can run 19-minute 5K. I, your genetic profile indicates you are capable of running a 19-minute 5K. I would say, oh, okay. I don't know. It's interesting to think about, right? Well, the, and I talk a lot about self-talk and beliefs and the way that we talk to ourselves. And I think this is part of it, not lying to yourself or fooling yourself, but the way that you assume you can or cannot do things based on whatever data you're receiving. And I think this is interesting. And we look in the context of what regular runners like you and I are doing. If we're looking at things like, um, you know, estimated performance potential, right? Or like, you know, estimated race pace or all these things, or you know, if our kind of the the expectation that those numbers might set for us in one way or another, oh, I can or oh, I can't, something to think about because potential is not everything, right? Potential is only the starting point. And like I said, at the you know, earlier is that most of us never get anywhere close to realizing our full potential. So in essence, if we, the regular people, treat ourselves as if our potential is unlimited. I don't know how good I could get, but if I train consistently over years, let's see where this goes. What could happen? Because so often as runners, we are very focused on short-term goals. And for some of you might say, well, that's, that's not true. I have a goal of running this in next year. I would argue that's still a short-term goal. You're still setting, whether you realize it or not, kind of an end goal. And all of the goals you set, I firmly believe, should be stepping stone goals. Not like, oh, if I reach this goal, I'll be happier. Oh, I think if I tried really, really hard for a couple years, I could probably reach this time. Okay, but like, what, what, what about after that? Like, that might be true, but that's not the end of it. Something to think about when it comes to goal setting and what you believe that your potential truly is. It's not, it, it's not a closed, it's not a tunnel like with an end. It's not a dead end tunnel that you're trying to reach the end of. It's an open-ended question. 
all right, enough about genetics and potential and all that. Let's talk about the hard stuff. <laughs> Let's talk about the, yeah, but what are they actually doing? What are they capable? What are they, what are they actually doing? What are elite runners, world-class runners doing? So looking at a couple different uh, articles, studies, analyses, retrospective, uh, this, this is all pretty new stuff, right? Um, again, more, more and better access to training data, more and better access to uh, different physiological variables and, and lab results and all that kind of stuff is giving rise to a better, better understanding. But still, as I, as I mentioned, it is more retroactive. It more is looking at the things that they've already done, right? Rather than being able to monitor in real time. Um, like I said, that would be I mean, I'm assuming we'll probably get there at some point, but prohibitively expensive and reasonably invasive for the many athletes who are involved. But and also the thing about a lot of the world about being a world class athlete is that although some athletes are very open with their training, I mean, Kipchoge published some of his train, like published his training online as kind of like a. I dare you to do this too. <laughs> um, the Ingebrigtsens have had uh, their training published online, but. Also, by and large, you know, sometimes for these world-class runners, the training that they're doing is a bit of a, it's a secret, it's proprietary knowledge, right? Now, the interesting thing is that there's only so many ways one can put the puzzle pieces together and the context and the whole of this matters. You can't just say, well, Jakob Ingebrigtsen's doing double lactate threshold workouts, so I'm going to do double lactate threshold workouts too. Like, okay... But you're missing like the rest of the stuff in the context of what is going on in those workout choices. There's a great quote from Mike Scannell, who's Grant Fisher's uh, coach. Grant Fisher is a fabulous runner. He has the American national records for the 5,000 and the 10,000 meters and the 3,000 meters. <laughs> like he's very, very talented. And he recently left the Bowerman Track Club and reunited with his old coach, Mike Scannell. And Mike uh, had something really interesting to say, which I thought, yeah, I think it, it, it encapsulates the whole thing about training somebody at this level. <clears throat> uh, quote, Grant didn't really go into training much in the interview, but I'm fine sharing our training with others. Uh, side note, he was uh, Mike's referencing an interview that Grant gave. <clears throat> I love the fact that ja Jakob shares his stuff. Jakob has made lactate testing cool. The only problem with sharing stuff is that people pick one or two things from the plan and try them. I'm sure they can complete them, but training is like a puzzle. You have to have all the pieces, not just one day, to see the program. That is where it gets difficult. People see one day and either compliment or criticize, but they are not seeing the program. They are looking at one day. I'm a results-oriented coach. If the results are good, I like the program. If the results are not good, the program has to change. This is non-negotiable. End quote. So I think this is... Um, one, fabulous advice to all of us. It's not about any one workout, one day, one component in our training. Um, but even more so when we're looking at what some of the best runners in the world are doing is that it all works into the system. And, and it's not just about the program of what they're doing in their running. It's about all of it. It's about what the athlete is preferentially uh, uh, more geared towards being able to handle what their, you know, what their genetic profile is, what their personal schedule is like, where they are in their life right now, the other things they do when they're in their lives. Like it, 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 nothing again, what do I say? Your training doesn't happen in a vacuum, just like for you also for them. So something really interesting to note as a 
preface before we go into talking about the training characteristics of world-class distance runners, which I think is an important thing to know because we're going to talk about the ways that elite runners train. And I think people are going to be want to say like, oh, but they do this, like, oh, but they do that. Oh, but they do this. But it's all about how it works together, ebbs and flows, fluctuates over time, not just season to season, year to year, decade to decade. Now, looking at this article, the training characteristics of world-class distance runners and integration of scientific literature and results proven practice from, what year is this, 22? I think it's 2022. It's pretty recent. 22. Here we go. Um, one of my favorite little notes in this, and this is this is from the background section, quote, most world-class long-distance runners engage in systematic training for eight to 10 years prior to reaching a high international standard, end quote, eight to 10 years. My gosh, just think about that. Are you prepared to work systematically, consistently for eight to 10 years before achieving the breakthroughs that you want to achieve? Because that's what these people, this is what the best in the world are doing. So when you haven't reached your goal in eight months, come on, zoom out. Eight to 10 years of consistent, systematic training before, what did I say? Reaching a high international standard right? Kind of puts it in context, doesn't it? The expectation that these athletes have, the best in the world, is that this is going to take some time. And I'm going to need to dedicate a couple years to this and be really consistent, right? And then, of course, we've seen from the elite runners on the national stage, the internet, sorry, international stage, that once you reach that level, you can still keep getting better. But again, this takes time. Stop thinking in weeks and months. Start thinking in years and decades. All right, here we go. Looking at the training characteristics of world-class distance runners. So first off, let's actually, let's back up a bit and talk about the physiological characteristics of what uh, elite runners, world-class runners have that the rest of us don't. And they essentially have exactly what we have, but just like better. (laughs) We're all human, right? But they're like, dialed up a little bit um so obviously well actually let's see from training characteristics quote training for long distance running aims to improve the big three performance determining variables maximum oxygen uptake vo2 max the highest rate at which the body can take up and utilize oxygen during severe exercise fractional utilization the ability to sustain a high percentage of vo2 max when running and running economy, VO2 at a given submaximal running velocity. So those are kind of the big three things that we're all looking to maximize when we are running. And, and physiologically, like what, are, what do they have that's better than us? So, I mean, we all as runners experience the adaptations that running confers upon us. But like I said, world-class runners are starting essentially with much better equipment than the rest of us have, and they're just making it better, right? So is it uh, an improved ability to adapt to training? Or is it your starting place is already better or is it both? And I'd say it's probably both because in this world, the answer is probably both. Um, in that what we tend to see, and this is pretty cool. So obviously one of the big things with long distance running, 
it's majority is mostly aerobic, right? Aerobic meaning oxygen. Um, so <laughs> uh, one of the most important things is essentially how much oxygen can you deliver to your muscles? And a regular adult exercising at their maximum level has a stroke volume or essentially how much blood your heart can pump at any, on any given beat, about 120 milliliters of blood. Um, now endurance, so that's a, a regular adult, right? A recreational or a sedentary adult. Uh, an endurance athlete, a, a trained regular recreational athlete has a stroke volume during maximum exercise of around 200. 200 milliliters, right? So you, one of the things that improves with your endurance capability is your body's ability to pump more blood from your heart because of the strengthening of the left ventricle of your heart, which is pretty cool. Um, but the thing about in, in elite endurance runners, um, they have an excellent stroke volume and they can sustain a relatively high heart rate for a longer period of time, meaning that they can essentially pump way more blood than the rest of us, which means that more oxygen can be circulated compared to the rest of us. Now, and they also have the ability to be really efficient with the oxygen that they are using and efficient and economical with their movements. So they have more gas, but they have more efficient engines at the same time to use car analogies. I'm not very good with cars, but I do try. So they have, they can produce more energy, they have more more oxygen available, they can produce more energy, and yet at the same time, their engines need less energy to go faster than the rest of us. I don't know if anybody's done the Kipchoge challenge where you try to run at 13 miles per hour on the treadmill, right? How long did that last? 10 seconds, 15? He runs a marathon at that pace, right? You have to have exceptional running economy, running efficiency, and all the other maximal substrate utilization and extraordinarily high and efficient VO2 max, all of these things, all of us are capable of, but like I said, the elites are just dialed up to 11. So let's talk about VO2 max because everybody focuses on this um, and you shouldn't. <laughs> and you certainly shouldn't focus on the VO2 max that your watch says you have because that's not a real measurement of anything. Um, VO2 max, look, it is it is indisputable that elite, that world-class athletes have a high VO2 max. Um, but that's, that's not, a, that alone is not why they're so fast. Um, so what is VO2 max? VO2 max is the rate, the maximal rate at which your body can use oxygen, right? Can get it from your lungs, through your blood, into your muscles, into your mitochondria, and use it to create ATP. Um, and the more oxygen you can use, the more ATP you can create. And ATP is your body's energy currency, remember bio? Um, and the more ATP you have, the more energy you can make, AKA the faster you can go. So yes, World-class runners do have a higher VO2 max than the rest of us, but that alone is not what makes them world-class. And actually, VO2 max, focusing on VO2 max as the predictor of endurance performance is probably not the most effective metric to focus on. That actually is lactate threshold. So what is an elite runner's VO2 max? Um, so uh, normal people, the rest of us, a good VO2 max is 45, 50. Elite runners are probably mostly in the 65 to 90 milligram milliliters per kilogram of, what is it? Milligrams of, millil <laughs> milliliters of oxygen consumed per kilogram of body weight per minute. I got that out eventually. 
Right. So right off the bat, look, yes, they are they're working with more. VO2 max is a trainable attribute, which means that it can be changed through training. What determines where you start and where you can end up with a VO2 max is primarily genetic in nature. So yes, we can see already, right? So if you're in a, a world-class runner, you're genetically predisposed to have a higher VO2 max and a higher ceiling to what your VO2 max could possibly become. Um, but the important thing to note about VO2 max is that even if it doesn't change, you can still improve your conditioning and your performance. Um, VO2 improving VO2 max is not the only way to improve performance and you can improve your ability without improving VO2 max. So, um, looking at it just people tend to focus on VO2 max because it's relatively easy to measure. Um, but again, there are many other more better, more better, um, uh, things that we can look at in terms of pinpointing one's ability. I digress. Um, Looking at the article, Anaerobic Threshold, Its Concept and Role in Endurance Sport. This one is from 2004. Um, I love this. Just talk, It's talking about anaerobic threshold. Um, and so I have some, some really interesting, just really good summary kind of quotes from this about um, VO2 max. And essentially, it's not about VO2 max. It's about the intersection of VO2 max with, VO2 max with other variables and really about lactate and or the lack of accumulation of lactate and the onset point of lactate that is really really what sets world-class endurance runners apart <clears throat> vo2 max is an important variable that sets the upper limit for endurance performance an athlete cannot operate above 100 vo2 max for extended periods running economy and fractional utilization of vo2 max also affect endurance performance sidebar um Fractional utilization of VO2 max, that means how long you can spend at different proportions of your VO2 max, right? So a very well-trained runner can spend a relatively long time at a relatively high VO2 max. That's what that means. The ability to not have a high, not only to have a high VO2 max, but to do a lot of work for a long time, very close to your VO2 max. That's fractional utilization. <clears throat> going back to the article, the speed at lactate threshold integrates all three of these variables, right? What's my third variable? VO2 max, running economy and fractionalization. Here we go. <laughs> Sorry. Speed at lactate threshold integrates all three of these variables and is the best physiological predictor of distance running performance. So again, it's not any one thing that allows them to do what they do. It's the intersection of a bunch of these different things. Um, <clears throat> also, quote, VO2 max may provide a useful indicator of the aerobic capacity of an athlete, but its use is limited in the ongoing process of monitoring changes in the training state. End quote. Again, meaning you can have changes in your training state, your, your training, uh, your fitness, um, and your VO2 max would, don't, doesn't change. Now let's revisit the training characteristics of world-class distance runners and integration of scientific literature and results proven practice, right? So <clears throat> again, quote, the big three performance determining variables, maximum oxygen uptake, VO2 max, fractional utilization, the ability to sustain a high percentage of VO2 max in running and running economy, VO2 max, uh, VO2 at a given submaximal running velocity. Together, these variables integrate the sustained ability to produce adenosine triphosphate aerobically and convert muscular work to power slash speed. End quote. The interesting thing as this goes on, again, illustrating that it is the 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 uh, the perfect storm, if you will, the wonderful puzzle of all of these pieces fitting together. 
that this is actually pretty cool. Um, quote, international runners demonstrate different combinations of these determinants as an acceptable value in one variable can be compensated for with an extremely high value in other variables. End quote. That's pretty cool, right? So it's not to say that elite world-class runners are all good at all the things, right? Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. Some people are essentially so exceptional in one area that they can essentially make up for the fact that they're simply above average in another. I doubt that any world-class runner is average or below average in any of these key variables. Um, and of course that begs the question then, well, what if somebody were exceptional in all areas? right? That's when we get the generational talents. That's when we get the sub two marathon. That's when we get these unbelievable performances. What happens if an athlete is truly exceptional in every way one can be exceptional in allowing you to be the best in the world, the best there ever was as an endurance runner? So the other thing that's very cool, and we're going to talk more about the training characteristics, like how do these elite runners train? What does their training look like? Um, I love that this that this article, training characteristics, um, doesn't look at just the three like things you can measure, right? Because you can you can put somebody in a lab, you can measure VO two max, you can, you can measure fractional utilization, you can measure running economy, um, but there's other things that you can't measure but which do exist. More ineffable ephemeral things if we if it were um quote in addition a fourth variable neuromuscular power slash anaerobic capacity plays an important role in the decisive end of tactical of tactical track races sidebar i would argue that that actually also plays a role at the end of tactical marathons if you will not just drag races this this article training characteristics looks at um the training characteristics of not just elite marathoners but also uh world-class uh five five thousand and ten thousand meter runners we're not going to talk about those we're going to talk mostly about the marathon like i said the distance stuff but it's there <clears throat> back to the article further classic laboratory testing may not capture a fifth variable fatigue resistance associated with specific adaptations that delay muscular deterioration and fatigue and enable maintaining race pace over the final seven to 10 kilometers of an elite marathon. Different time courses in the development of these performance determinants are very likely. This is exemplified by a case study of former marathon world record holder Paula Radcliffe, who improved running economy by 15% between 1991 and 2003, Sidebar, 12 years, people, 12 years. <clears throat> While VO2 max remained essentially stable at 70 milliliters per kilogram per minute. End quote. So what do we learn from this, right? There seems to be something a little bit unmeasurable about what allows runners to really perform over long distances like this but also that all of these variables develop at different rates and over relatively long periods of time. Paula Radcliffe, 15% improvement in running economy took 12 years. She improved on average 1.25% in her running economy per year. So the next time that you say, well, I only improved by this much, if you only improve by whatever amount it is every year, guess what you might be in eight years, 10 years, 12 years. It adds up over time. So we say the most important thing you can do as an endurance runner is be consistent over long periods of time. And that brings us to the training, the training, 
not just what they're born with, but what they do with it. Now, it's obvious and no secret that world-class runner, distance runners, elite runners run a lot. And I, I think anybody who has put up any sort of serious mileage, it's not just that they run so much. It's that they're able to run so much week after week after month after year. World-class marathoners average uh, or somewhere between 100 and 140 miles per week. It's 160 and 220 kilometers per week in their mid-preparation period. So it's not even peak volume. That's a lot of running. That's a a lot of running Um, by hours per week. And I think for most of us, we say that's so much running. But you guys, they're fast. They're so fast. Their easy paces are fast. So yeah, they're running a lot, but they're covering quite a lot of ground. Uh, Most world-leading marathon runners train 500 to 700 hours per year. Breaks down to about 10 to 13 hours per week in 11 to 14 sessions per week. And you say, wait a minute, there's only seven days in the week. The characteristics of world-class endurance runners means that doubles. Running twice in one day is a feature of many of their training programs. Um... It's a lot for those of you who have run doubles. It's a lot. I don't typically program them in to my athletes training until we're exceeding around 70 miles per week. Now, there are other reasons why you would include running twice in one day in your training, even if you're running less than 70 miles per week. But as a rule, um, as as a general rule, as a general guideline, the stress of running twice in one day is not as benefit like it's it's a lot of stress like I would rather you just add a different day of running rather than add another run to a day you're already running um just for those of you who are curious about doubles and when we incorporate them and like I said yes they can they can be used in other contexts but that's really individualized so for those of you who are like well elite runners run twice in one day if you're not running a lot already doubles probably won't be for you and even then there are I mean I've run doubles as part of training before. It's a lot. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. Um, and I don't love it. I, I don't love it. Um, it's, it's a lot for those of you. Some people, some people do enjoy it. I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'd ever want to do it again. (laughs) Um, so that that's how they're doing it, right? So they're getting a hundred to 140 miles per week, more if they're peaking for a lot of, and I know it's become a little bit more, not common, Okay, so more common for some uh, very, uh, very highly trained elite athletes, especially female athletes, uh, especially masters female athletes to qualify this further to talk about, well, now I'm only running, I only run 80 to 100 miles per week, which honestly for a world-class athlete is, and a world-class endurance athlete is is like low volume. Um, For the rest of us, it sounds crazy high um especially if you're running 25 miles per week you say oh my god 80 she's only running what do you mean only running 80 miles per week thinking about the training habits of that class of runner that's not a lot but again i think it's nice that we're seeing more individualization here and not assuming that the most important thing is volume it's how are you using the volume that you have right more is not always better and that is important even for the most durable athletes among us who can handle these super high volume weeks um 
injury prevention is top notch. Here we go. Quote, because most injuries are attributed to rapid and excessive increases in training load, elite performers increase the total running volume gradually during the initial eight to 12 weeks of the macro cycle. This volume progression is mainly achieved by increasing training frequency in the initial phase, then subsequently raised further by lengthening individual training sessions. End quote. This should be no surprise to any of you who followed any of my plans. What does this look like? Hey, you were running three days per week. Now you're running four, but all of your runs, your, your other runs haven't changed. You just added another day. And then we start to increase volume, right? Because adding frequency add, include, increases training load right? You don't have to make runs longer to increase your training load. Sometimes you just need to add another day. And this is where the whole thing about doubles comes in because you essentially start adding doubles when you can no longer increase the length of the other runs that you're doing. It doesn't make sense to turn every single run that you do into a two and a half hour run. That's not feasible or possible or something that you'd want to do. Like runs, runs of different lengths and intensities have a different purpose right? It's not about making each individual run as long as possible. There are, and this is where the doubles comes in. It's another way to manipulate frequency and training volume is that when you've essentially maxed out how long all of the individual runs you have in your week already are, then you start adding more sessions. Now that's not supposed, this is not a podcast on how to add doubles, but typically when you do add doubles, the first, the double run that additional run, that's an easy run. That is a short, easy run. It's a recovery run. Um, maybe you do two easy runs in one day. Maybe you do a workout and then an easy run, right? So you do your, you know, I don't know, six miles in the morning and four miles at night, or you do a track session and then you do 30 minutes at night, right? So it's it's not a hard run. Your double is not, I'm not even going to go into double lactate threshold training. That's going to be an entirely other podcast dedicated to that. All right, back to the training stuff. Strength training. Cool that we're talking about what the elites are doing in strength training. Um, <clears throat> so yes, world-class runners do add strength training. Several successful long distance runners have sub supplemented their sport specific training with alternative locomotion modalities, so-called cross training, including swimming, bike, sorry, I'm reading from the wrong place. Sometimes they also cross train, I guess is where I was going with this. Um, so running is great but sometimes you also need to cross train. Yes, they also do add strength. Less specific training forms, such as strength, power, and plyometric training in small doses relative to training do running training dosage are commonly applied by world-leading long-distance runners. Even though these training forms do not duplicate the holistic running movement, they likely target specific neuromuscular qualities that underlie running economy. A review of the results proven practice shows that some, such supplementary training is typically implemented as a combination of one, resistance training using free weights or apparatus, squats, cleans, lunges, step ups, leg press, etc., without causing noteworthy hypertrophy. Sidebar, that means that you're not intentionally trying to build muscle mass, right? So you can build strength without building muscle mass. Hypertrophy it refers to the, you know, you're trying to get swole, okay? And don't be afraid of heavy lifting because you're afraid it's going to make you bulky. It's not. Do you know how hard it is to build muscle mass? It's it's really hard. You're not going to wake up and look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I promise. <clears throat> Two, circuit training with body mass resistance. Three, core strength slash stability. Uh, and four, plyometrics in the form of vertical and or horizontal multi-jumps on grass, inclined stairs, hills, etc. So yeah, this is all this is all pretty common, right? This should look really, yeah, strength training, some core 
some plyo, easy runs, right? What about the hard stuff? How much hard running do elite runners do? Now, this is where that whole 80-20 thing came from, retrospective analyses of the data from world-class endurance athletes. Not this literal study, but like that's where the whole 80-20 concept came from. Looking at essentially, hey, all these super fast people are doing 80% of their training in a low intensity zone and 20% of their training in a high intensity zone. And other research indicates that doing a ton of really high intensity stuff isn't as great for endurance. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I'm trying to find the study that I want to actually quote from here. Looking at the training intensity distribution among well-trained and elite endurance athletes from frontiers in physiology. This is from 2015. This is like, yeah, how are they doing it? How, how what are they actually doing, right? So long story short, um, I'll sum this up for you. If you look at a, a training year, right? Take the entire year for a world-class endurance runner. On average, they're running about 20% of their training above their aerobic threshold and about 80% below their aerobic threshold. However, the proportion of that training intensity distribution changes throughout the year depending on what tr- phase of training that they're in. Most world-class athletes target two major performances per year, right? Because you really only have one to two big aerobic peaks per year. So they typically base their training around a big spring and a big fall marathon and might fill in a couple half marathons or shorter distances, but they're focused mainly on those big spring and fall marathons. That's how they know they can get the best out of themselves. So not trying to be a top condition all the time. They're trying to be in peak condition on very for very specific windows. Okay. And so, yes, in different phases of their training, they might be doing more than 20% of, of uh, moderate or high intensity, right? And other phases of the training, they're doing less than 20% of moderate or high intensity. Research shows, and as you would expect, that the closer we get to race day, the more race-specific pace work they're doing, obviously, right? And obviously, if they're in a, a base phase, right, they're going to be doing almost no marathon pace work. Why would they? So that changes. The average is around 80-20 right? But that changes as your training intensity distribution should also tra- change throughout the year. Now, what types of workouts did they do? All of them, right? Easy runs. Again, well, I'll say for world-class runners though, they're still running a lot of stuff in their easy effort zone, even when they're doing a lot of, uh, you know, specific work, um, they're still doing a ton of easy volume. Okay. So what kind of, what are they doing? They're easy runs. They're doing long runs, uphill runs, threshold runs, also called tempos, fart looks, progressive long runs. They're doing interval training, threshold intervals, VO2 max intervals, lactate tolerance training, hill repeats, sprints, strides. Hey, all of that sounds really familiar. Stars, they're just like us, except they're doing a lot of it, right? But it's all, what does this mean? It means they're, it's not just about doing one thing, right? They're not like, oh, I'm going to do a bunch of marathon pace work. No, it's variation. It's working different systems. It's, it's improving your running economy at different speeds. It's improving your ability to do different things at different intensities, right? Variation in your training. And obviously what you're focusing on in any given phase will depend on where you are in your training and what your goal is. 
Now, the proportion of different types of intensity, I think is really interesting. There's an inverse relationship to them. So what do I mean by this? Let's back up the whole zones thing. I know it can get confusing. If you've taken my Foundations of Running series, you will know this in and out by now. If you've taken the Heart Rate Zones Masterclass, I also cover this too. Broadly speaking, um, well, one, go watch Foundations. It's freaking amazing, if I do say so myself. Two, you have you have three major training zones, below your aerobic threshold, between aerobic threshold and lactate threshold, and above lactate threshold. When exercise physiologists are talking about training intensity distribution, they're talking about these three zones. So zone two to an exercise physiologist is actually the moderate zone. Zone one to an exercise physiologist is actually the easy zone. I know it gets confusing. Why do we use a five zone model? I don't know. Most of us only need three zones to begin with. Long story short. The most consistent training intensity characteristic of elite distance runners is that most of the running distance equal to or greater than 80% is performed at low intensity throughout the training year corresponding to zone one. Training in zone two or three, there's an inverse relationship there. So let's say an athlete is spending more time in the moderate intensity zone because they're doing marathon prep, they'll spend correspondingly less time in a high intensity zone. Vice versa, if they're spending more time in a high intensity zone, they'll spend less time in a moderate intensity zone. I thought that was very interesting. Um, that it's, it's not like it just doesn't, it doesn't grow equally. Like if you're doing 15% of your work at moderate 5% at a, you know, high intensity or whatever the split is. Um, this is, this is a little bit mind blowing this. Yeah. If you want to feel a little bit, uh, inadequate, <clears throat> according to Casado et al, just a, a, another paper tempo runs, continuous running, uh, in zone two, account for about 20% of the total annual running volume in world-class Kenyan long-distance runners. Yeah, that's a lot of moderate intensity running. Not to say that, but here's the thing, 20%, 20%. Now by volume, that's a lot because a lot of these runners are running 130 miles per week. But what does this mean? As a percentage of their total training volume, they're only running 20 elite World-class Kenyan marathoners are only spending about 20% of their total training time at marathon pace. Wow. That's crazy. Now, obviously, it's specific to them because all of this, right, has to come together. They're also running triple-digit mileage. But just something to think of. If the most effective way were to get to get really good at marathoning was to run at marathon pace all the time don't you think they'd be doing that so no we do not need to do miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of of marathon pace work to get better at marathoning it's important it's important to do marathon pace work for marathon performance but you don't need to do a crap ton of it especially the expense of other things in your training Uh, distance runners perform sprint training uh, it's strides. What is described in this paper is essentially strides, <laughs> which I think is really cool. And one of the other very cool things that elite uh, world-class runners do is apply altitude training. So, uh, quote, most world-class African runners apply the live high, train high model as they live and carry out their training sessions at relatively high intensity, about 2,000 to 2,500 meters above sea level, which for those of us who are imperial, between 6,500 and 8,200 feet above sea level. That's really high. Um, 
uh, lowland athletes tend to perform, tend to go to altitude camps two to four weeks prior to the most important competitions with most emphasis on low intensity and moderate intensity sessions. Um, now the, the altitude stuff is, um, whether it works or not, I'd say it's not controversial. It's just not like guaranteed. I think it's one of those things that is a best practice, like where's the harm. Um, but yeah, the, the altitude thing, um, that's interesting because essentially living it uh, or being at altitude forces your body to essentially it's like natural EPO, um, forces your body to theoretically create more blood cells, red blood cells and red blood cells, more oxygen, more oxygen. We already talked about that. I love this part in the paper. In all cases, successful use of altitude training by the best long distance runners is characterized by individualized, well-balanced training load and optimized nutrition, optimized recovery strategies through adequate sleep, rest, and nutritional factors. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of our training should be. Balanced training load, optimized sleep and nutritional factors, right? Patience, dedication, consistency, all of it. Now, it may have totally freaked you out to learn some of these things today, but I really hope it inspires you that even those runners who are born with all of these predispositions, these gifts, they still have to work their butts off for decades in some cases to see what they're truly capable of doing, right? And I think that sometimes we forget that behind every star runner is a person who has sweat and bled and cried and gotten lost and had a breakdown and thought they failed and all of these things just like the rest of us you know just because somebody is really really fast doesn't mean they're not a regular person who has to work really hard just like you and me who has doubts who has fears who has tried something and totally bombed, right? So yes, although there are some people who have these incredible gifts, they still have to work at them just like the rest of us. So if they can be patient and if they can work hard for the years and possibly decades that it takes to see their full potential, I know that we can too. That's going to do it for me today. I am so thrilled to have you back in my world this year. Looking forward to an absolutely fabulous 2024. If you enjoy the show, I would love for you to rate this show on your preferred podcast platform, Spotify, Apple, Audible, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you hate the show and you've made it this far, just send me a message and let me know why you hate it. I'd be happy to help. I'll see you guys next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.